Welcome to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and I'm proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Every episode of this podcast will bring in a variety of experts to help all writers incorporate more authentic cops, crime, and criminals in their stories. Sitting across the interrogation room from me today is investigative journalist and true crime author Kevin Deutsch. Kevin studied at Florida International University, worked for the Miami Herald, Newsday, the Riverdale Press, and the Daily News. His freelance work has graced the pages of Newsweek, New York Times, and Columbia Journalism Review. Kevin's taught journalism at Queens College and Hofstra University, and has penned two investigative crime nonfictions, the first entitled The Triangle, A Year on the Ground with New York's Bloods and Crips, and the second, Pill City, How Two Honor Roll Students Foiled the Feds and Built a Drug Empire, both of which brought him into the violent criminal underbelly society. Kevin is currently a staff writer at the Bronx Justice News and also hosts a podcast on the same network entitled The Dark Turn. Welcome to Writers on the Beat, Kevin. I appreciate you spending time with me today. Thanks, Gavin. I appreciate you having me. It's good to be with you. Oh, and um, looking at things from the the outside the, the world of journalism, um, I, I'd like to get your feedback, your input on what um, your your thoughts, your definition of uh, journalism's role in society, and uh, specifically what uh, the daily life of an investigative reporter looks like. I think journalism at this moment uh, in in our history is more vital and crucial than ever to mm-hmm. maintaining a, funct- a functioning democracy. Um, as we've seen um, press come under attack by this administration and also globally, um, uh, we've seen a clampdown on a free press. We've seen uh, very vitriolic attacks on the idea of a free press in this country and elsewhere. And so I think it's a time of uh, in which uh, journalism is being tested, um, not just the large institutions mm-hmm. that we know well, like the Times and the Washington Post and these big newspapers, but also on a much smaller level. Um, you know, we think globally about journalism. We think of journalism as these these massive uh, news companies, and you know they're they're still out there, um, but but on a smaller level, um, there are journalists in communities everywhere, all over this country, including myself. Uh, I work I work in the Bronx. I work out of the Bronx courts and cover uh, criminal justice issues here. And on a on a micro level, on a local level, that's where uh, this is really uh, this battle is being fought because. We have to go and get information from people, and when um, and and when there's a, a mood of toxicity in which journalists are being attacked, mm-hmm. that trickles down to the local level, and this is where this is where the the donuts get made for for news consumers. <laughs> it's on a local level. It's it's, yes. it's the it's the reporter going to request court documents or covering a trial that no one else cares about, or foiling records that otherwise the public won't even know exist. This is where it gets made. So, so as, you know, so you hear about the Times being attacked as fake news and, and these big outlets, but, but, you know, where it matters is here because people hear the rhetoric from the administration and, and other um, um, forces that have sort of allayed against the, aligned against the, the, a free, the idea of, of total press freedom. And, and it, 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 it it has a damaging impact here on a local level when people, the way people treat reporters and think they can, uh, they can mistreat reporters. And I find myself citing the first amendment an awful lot uh, lately wow. in ways, in ways that, that I didn't have to before. And uh, so, so, yeah, I think that's, I think we just have to keep up the fight and make sure people know that there is a first amendment in this country that, 
that uh, uh, grants us uh, pr protections to report what we want mm -hmm. um, and to access public uh, hearings, public meetings, public records. So uh, uh, that's I think that uh, that role as, as journalists is more crucial than ever right now as sort of the institution of journalism is being tested. As you, you mentioned there pretty heavily, the uh, our, our nation, I think, is is incredibly divided right now, maybe as much as it's ever been, which, is, I mean, that's a huge concern for me personally. And I think we're fracturing along a lot of uh, social fault lines that run through all segments of our population. One, one of the most common and popular misconceptions, I think, is that uh, is, is the slandered relationship between the, the press and the police, especially for an investigative journalist such as yourself. Um, I, I admittedly am, a, 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 the listeners of the podcast already, already know this, but I, I'm, I'm a bit of an, uh, an idealist, I guess, an ideologue, a uh, civil libertarian of sorts. And, you know, I, I very firmly believe in the power of the press and the, the, the power of integrity uh, and honest ethical reporting and the relationship that that has with the police um, and police administrations. What, as an investigative journalist, what, what's been your experience with the police, even though that's kind of this monolithic misnomer almost? Uh, well, I, I mean, it varies. Um, mm -hmm. You know, some, de some departments and law enforcement agencies and individual officers and investigators are extremely open um, and, and cooperative, and they want it. They understand that, that the that the that reporters are a are the vehicle through which the public learns about what the police department is doing, mm -hmm. um, and they and they understand that we're a conduit, and so um, and so they help us and they give us the information that we're entitled to as 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 citizens, as as reporters, as, as members of the public press. Um, but other departments and other individuals in law enforcement agencies are, uh, uh, you know, often do not want to. Um, release information, even information that is publicly releasable and should be available under public records laws. Yes. Um, so it really, it really depends. I mean, I, I'm working on a, on a book right now about uh, a series of murders and abductions that happened in Boca Raton, Florida in 2007 mm -hmm. at, at, a, at a mall, an upscale mall in Boca. And I covered them at the time for the Palm Beach Post. And so I'm, I'm investigating these cases now for, for a book and, and trying to hopefully solve them or at least come get some answers. And I've encountered tremendous resistance from the Boca Raton Police Department. And I think, you know, that, that's, uh, you know, that's sort of emblematic of, of what happens sometimes when journalists try to get information from police departments who don't necessarily want their work to be scrutinized, uh, their, invest, their, their tactics and maybe what they did right or didn't do right 11 years ago on a case, right? You know, yeah, uh, they, they they don't want to be second guessed, and I understand that because as a reporter, I didn't like being second guessed either. Uh, um, but but so th there's a there's a but there's a compromise there, you know, where yes. where reporter reporters um, like myself, you know, we we want to look at what the you know we want the public information about a about murder investigations, um, and, and sort of the, and there's a there's a feeling and and the Boca case is emblematic of this that. You know, they don't want that, that a lot of law enforcement agencies don't want reporters second guessing what they did. And, and it's not. And, and there's an inherent distrust in many cases between law enforcement and the press. And it, and it shouldn't be like that, because no. I have many friends. I have many friends in law enforcement. I know that there are great detectives out there. Um, they're very they're they're 
just like any other business. There are great talents and there are not so great talents. Right. And, 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 you know, we understand that, that the police have an, an incredibly difficult job to do and respect that. And I feel like, you know, this adversarial um, component of journalism doesn't have to exist. And uh, because, because we're, we're more alike than we are different. We're yes. both speaking the truth. We both want answers. We both, in the case, in the Boca case, I want to help this family. I want to help these families get answers. And so, you know, I think a lot of the times there's just this is an inherent distrust um, in some corners of the law enforcement world for the press. And, and you know, I, I hope that changes. I, I don't think that we're close to changing it, but I'd like to believe it's possible to, to change that dynamic. Yeah, you know, that's one of the things that's that's frustrating um, from within the profession for me is I, I getting back to the the ideology of the thing, you know, I I very seriously take our our vow to protect and serve the public. And part of that service to me, right, is putting the best people in the best positions to best serve the public interest. So for example, you know, you have your most competent people I think should be working homicide. Those are the most important crimes, the greatest crimes against humanity. And we owe a debt to the public to make sure that those are done not just right, but perfectly as we're able. And unfortunately, I think part of the, the law enforcement seniority-based system um, doesn't necessarily reward or put the best people in those positions, unfortunately. And in some cases, uh, I think that a light does need to be shown on that particular area of competence. If there is um, you know, a murder investigation that can't be solved, it's probably time to have a second set of eyes look at it. And you know, if outsiders are able to um, able to do that effectively, then, you know, we probably need to, A, to get that help. And secondly, we probably need to look for a better homicide investigator. So I, I think the role that you're playing in this Boca Raton thing is, is especially important. Um, you know, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a fascinating series of cases. And I think what you just wrote, what you just touched on is the idea of a, a new set of eyes coming in. I think mm -hmm. that's something that we're going to be dealing with more and more as sort of as sort of these, with this true crime explosion we're having, where investigative reporters often come in, it's just it's gonna we're gonna keep seeing this. So, um, and hopefully it'll help solve some cases. Yeah, I, I think that would be fantastic. Because at the, at the end of the day, um, everyone who goes through the police academy, um, and I think you know everyone who goes through a journalism school, you're you're there to to serve the public interest and and to serve the public itself and like you said we we have a lot more in common than we actually do different i think we're just we're in a slightly different hat and going about things a little bit differently but i think we could be much better partners in the whole thing um which i guess kind of starts leading me toward a uh, toward a discussion on your most recent release um pill city uh, which garnered a, a lot of attention hate and slander from entities and segments of our society that are supposed to be above such slander and libel. Uh, for listeners unfamiliar with that book and its aftermath, can you talk a little bit about that episode of your life? Sure. Uh, I, I've written two books, two nonfiction crime books. My first one was called The Triangle, as you mentioned, um, uh, which I wrote while I was working in Newsday. And I, I sort of stayed in the world of um, of uh, journalism about street gangs and drug trafficking with my second book, Pill City. Uh, Pill City is a is a story of the drug of of um, of drugs that were looted um, 
from more than 30 pharmacies and methadone clinics in Baltimore uh, during the 2015 riots in that city. Mm-hmm. Um, never in or country's history have that many drugstores been looted, have that many uh, right. prescription drugs been injected Just into the street supply. Right. And, and, and during that same period, there was a period of lawlessness um, mm-hmm. during and after the riots in which the police department said that uh, that various drug gangs were battling for position and supremacy uh, because of the destabilization that had occurred with all this new supply on the streets from the pharmacies. And in this climate, um, a lot of other new drugs, uh, street drugs, heroin and, and pills, non-prescription, uh, uh, changed hands on the and which led to sort of uh, a, a period of intense uh, warfare between various gangs in Baltimore and sort of a realignment uh, and a power struggle caused by the, the new the, the destabilization of all these drugs on the street. And I wrote a book sort of capturing uh, this, this, this moment in history and how one particular drug gang um, used uh, high technology as well as their alliance with the Black Gorilla Family Gang, which is uh, perhaps the most powerful uh, street trafficking gang in Baltimore, to um, move to the top of the city's uh, illegal drug hier- dealing hierarchy. And I chronicled the story of this group, uh, in particular two young men who helped launch the group in conjunction with high-ranking members of BGF. And this book was met with a ton of criticism uh, from sure. uh, Baltimore uh, press um, who, uh, who said that I'd made things up or exaggerated. Um, they started doing this even before the book came out. Um, so they were just, they were, they were prepared to just, just attack the book no matter what, because they didn't have the story. And I was more than willing to, to sort of, I was more than willing to, to share records with them, to show them how I reported it, but they just wanted to rush to slam the book. And that was okay because at the end of the day, we, we, the book got a lot of, of, Bad publicity, but also introduced my in, introduced my book to a whole new audience, and we gained thousands of new readers because of it. And I still get emails and and texts and letters all the time. Um, people fascinated by this book, reading it. Um, you know, there's there's a film development project, uh, TV a TV show development project in the works for the show. And wow. so the book has had had an incredible afterlife, I think, in part because of the controversy it generated. Mm-hmm. And uh, we knew we knew when the book got published that it would that it might come under attack because we had changed the names uh, of almost everyone in the book, as well as many sure. details to, pr- to protect our sources. So we knew this was a possibility um, and we were ready for that. And to this day, uh, you know, uh, I'm proud of the book. I'm glad we told that story because the Baltimore press there was too too aligned with with the with the um, with this with the existing narrative, and they couldn't they they, did, they didn't want to upend that narrative. And uh, the only way that story was going to get told is if we told it. So uh, I'm glad we did, despite all the criticism. Yeah, absolutely. So you know, out of this, I guess this P.T. Barnum moment, you know, the the no such thing as bad press. But the uh, I was in, in preparing for the interview. That's one of the things I, I was hoping to, to try to find out. Like I, I can understand why, you know, a uh, a police department 
or I, I shouldn't, I shouldn't, I don't want to paint the whole department. Uh, you know, police administrators, people in power who don't want, you know, a, a negative narrative to get out. I, I understand. I don't, you know, believe in it, but I, I can at least rationally understand why they wouldn't want that to get out. But I, I couldn't understand why the press, uh, your colleagues would be, uh, would be upset about, you know, this, this story being told other than, I guess, just the, the jealousy that they got scooped on it and that, you know, that this thing was happening right under their nose. I, I think you've summed it up nicely. Um, and, and uh, you know, the, per, the press is, uh, we have tremendous power uh, because mm-hmm. of the First Amendment, tremendous leeway. And a lot of reporters try to use that press, that, that power for good. And others use it to recklessly try to hurt people and, and, and um, portray a reality that doesn't exist. And um, that's what some reporters did to me. They, they very conveniently left out anything that, was, that, that showed that my book was accurate and true. And they conveniently cherry-picked facts and structured them in a certain way to make it look like uh, there were parts that they should call into question. So uh, there are great, just like there are great detectives and bad detectives, there are great reporters and bad reporters. And a lot of bad reporters came after me. And uh, I think today the fact that Pill City is still standing, it's still a book that people get a lot out of, and it's still being read and sold, um, that's that's all that matters to me today. Well, and I, I think books like that are, are incredibly important. One of the several of the things that, that I think we as cops do really badly, we're terrible at PR, absolutely terrible. And we need to do a much better job of engaging with the public, helping the public understand why we do and what we do, even if we don't give away our, our tactics and strategy that helps the bad guys. I think we can have a better relationship with the public. But one of the things that this book did, I, I think also, is um, help Ma and Pa Kettle, sitting at home, understand how these drug organizations work and the complexity in the modern drug trafficking and, and drug dealing era where you know, they're making use of the dark web that most people don't even realize is, is really out there or they don't understand that that's the majority of the internet and they don't understand how all that logistically works. And I think things like this shed an important light on it from a public information standpoint. And, that, and that's what I was trying to do with the book, is really shed, shine a light on a, on a completely untold story, untold segment of the black market uh, mm-hmm. and drug trafficking in this country. And uh, that's what we set out to do, and it was an incredibly difficult project. And, uh, um, and, and so I hope, I hope people uh, got... What, you, what you're describing out of it. I, you know, I've heard from many people who did, and I hope we continue to see more journalism like that, that um, whatever the cost, whatever the attacks, uh, whatever may come of that kind of reporting, that reporting is important and, and people need to do it. So I hope we see more, 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 work, like, more work like that, and I'm going to continue to do work like that whenever I can. Now, looking at the looking at the press from the outside, and you know, there there definitely is a whole lot of vitriol cast at kind of everyone in, in society right now. I think we're unfortunately all the the power players in all segments seem to me like they're trying to pull everyone into camps of with us or against us and constantly redefining what us is and who them are and um, the press being a, right now a very popular um, popular pincushion, I guess. Looking at it from the outside, it seems to me that part of the difficulty is with the rise of kind of the blogosphere and and social media. And it seems totally from the outside and I could be totally dead wrong here, which is why you're here. 
that it seems like a lot of the, what I would say from my upbringing are the historical um, valued, respected integrity institutions of journalism are having to compete at a business level with bloggers who have, you know, um, not necessarily ethics training, not necessarily, you know, professional um, integrity that they, they don't have. They're just rushing to be first, not to be right. And it concerns me that this race to the bottom of just being first all the time is really altering journalism in general and really kind of bringing back, unfortunately, I think kind of the yellow journalism of the late 1800s, early 1900s, where facts don't matter as much as a story. Is that I think at all that, what you're seeing from inside? I, I think you're absolutely right. I, I think yellow journalism is back. You know, it, it's back. And uh, it's back because of the internet. It's back because of the de decentralization of news. Um, and, um, it, you know, there are lots of good and bad things about the decentralization and, and democratization of news due to the, the, in the internet. Um, um, some, of the, some of the good things are as these institutions, huge newspapers that control basically what we read and hear, um, as these institutions are sort of shrinking because of the internet and losing their their uh, sort of omnipotent positions, um, information is democratized and we get it's splintered and more people have access to information. Therefore, more people can be reporters, journalists. Um, mm -hmm. So that's that's good because it, it potentially gives us all more power as a democracy, as individuals to to consume news. But the flip side is and this is where the yellow journalism comes in, is that many people with that information um, distort it or uh, frame it in a false way or misleading way. Um, and, and so that, or a sensational way. And that, um, that has led us to the sort of um, um, uh, dynamic we see today where uh, people choose their own realities via news. Mm -hmm. uh, be a part be, be a, a partisan segment on the right or left. Um, they consume the narratives and stories that align with their existing uh, beliefs, and uh, we also get um, we also get uh, conspiracy theories, mm -hmm. conspiracy theory driven news outlets. We also get uh, um, uh, hyper sensationalistic news outlets. So um, you know. So overall, I think. I think the democratization of news is, has been good despite all this because I'm for taking the power away from these, this group of 10 to 12 editors sitting in a room in Manhattan yes. and, deci and deciding what the rest of, the rest of us are going to hear or not hear. And so I, I think that's a good thing. Uh, what isn't a good thing is that, is that with the information, many people have abused um, the Internet and their, their, first, their, 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 their First Amendment rights through false, misleading reporting, and that's not good. Um, so, no. so, you know, so I think we're, we're all, as, as responsible journalists, we need to fight for the truth. Um, those of us who are here fighting in the trenches um, need to fight to make sure we are accurate and uh, fight for, uh, for um, non-yellow non journalism, for fact-based, accurate journalism, despite what might be going on out there. And I think if we do that, on a local level, level, uh, level, our readers will find us and an audience will find us. Yeah, and I think, you know, what's, um, uh, it's, 
um, the, the famed Hunter S. Thompson quote that I, I don't even know what the original context was. It's been, you know, misprinted so many times, but, you know, insert your own business here. But, you know, he talks about a, a cruel and shallow money trench, a long plastic hallway where thieves and pimps run free and good men die like dogs. There's also a negative side. <laughs> um, you know, and that's been, been used to describe, you know, the music business, the journalism business, the TV news business. Um, you know, you can also use it, from my experience, to drive, describe certain aspects of the police business. Um, it's as if we're all people and we're all fallible. Weird, right? <laughs> you you, um, you nailed it. And, and it's, it's, it's true. It is a, it, this journalism can be a dirty, low-down, sad business. And that's what the public doesn't, doesn't realize. Is like it's just as filthy as pretty much any other, any other industry. But just the difference in journalism is that it holds itself up as this bastion of, uh, of you know, idealized uh, press protection and, and truth. When, in fact, uh, there, it's just as messy and ugly as any other industry behind the scenes. Well, you know, and I, I think there's, you know, continuing on, you know, this um, tangent of there being a lot of commonality between our professions. I I think that, you know, the I'm willing to believe that the, the vast majority of folks working in journalism are working with morals and ethics and integrity, but the most vocal and the loudest of them not may not necessarily be so. And I think there's a lot of analogous behavior in, in my profession, you know, that the folks who tend to get the most attention, good, bad, and otherwise are not necessarily there for the right reasons. Um, but the, um, one of the things that really surprised me um, coming into law enforcement was, was how, uh, I guess, ultimately depressing the business of, of cop work is um, with ever changing priorities, fires that have to be, um, have to be put out before you can tend to the ones that are just smoldering. Um, some people are more willing to talk to the press than the cops. Um, I've actually had people lie to me about their drug use and then within a handful of seconds tell the fireman and paramedic everything that they shot, snorted, or smoked in the last week while I'm still standing right in the same place. And I tell you all that to tell you this. To me, investigative journalism and, and journalists uh, really serve a critical function, and you kind of touched on a little earlier, where by the time that the cops and the investigators, the detectives have to move on to hotter cases, hotter priorities, more urgent needs, uh, journalists are still there to, to stand in and, and try to help find that, that truth and help catch the folks that managed to escape apprehension in those critical first few days, few months, few weeks, and continue to shine a light on the victims and strategies that government agencies don't have the time or staffing or the ability to continue to pursue. Um, all that said, do you remember the first investigative case you worked where you really got to make that kind of difference? Yeah, you know, and, and what you said um, uh, speaks to that 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 quality that 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 value that journalism has that makes our role in this democracy so important. As the watchdogs, as the people who, when no one else will look at something, even when law enforcement is is moving on, we stay. We we don't move on. So I think that's first first really important. Um, I, I I would go back to the first the first time I really got a taste for. Um, for uh, investigative journalism and for the difference the public could make was really just um, uh, investigating day-to-day -day crime as a, as a rookie reporter at the Miami Herald in 2003 and 2004. Um, I, I started, um, started out by, by 
covering the night, the night police beat. And so I would sit at my desk and I had a police scanner on my desk. And today it's all been digitized. And there, mm-hmm. there are companies that listen to the scanner all day and then they send texts to reporters. So reporters don't have to listen, <laughs> listen to the scanners anymore. But, you know, it used to be you sit, you sit, you have a scanner. I had a scanner in my car. I had a scanner on my desk and I listen. And then when you hear something interesting, you lock it in, you lock in the, the channel and you, and you, you go, you roll out, you go to the scene. So mm-hmm. um, it was really, really, you know, I was going out and responding to shootings, fires, homicides, rapes, anything I heard going on. And, um, you know, that's very, that sounds very basic and not really investigative journalism, but, but, but it really was because, mm-hmm. because there's no one else, there was no one else covering this stuff. There was no one in these communities, you know, I would often be the only reporter there. Um, sometimes the Sun Sentinel would be there, but oftentimes I was the only reporter there. And so I, I was the eyes and ears of the community as are so many crime and investigative reporters. Uh, and so I would get there and um, I would report and I would, I would meet the families and I would feel the grief and the loss. And uh, so on a human level, it was important for me and, and uh, as a journalist, but also as, as, a, as, a, as a budding investigator, it was important because um, I got to be a second set of eyes. The police were there doing their investigation, but I was also there watching the watchers and, and you know, not interfering, but, um, but, but, but making sure um, we, got our, we got the story about what, what truthfully happened and, and um, that people who were responsible for these terrible things were brought to justice or if there was the wrong person apprehended that we made that case too. So yes. um, we, even in those days, you know, as, as a basic police and crime reporters, um, when I was learning that that was an important function and that teaches you um, you know, how to be a watchdog in the most basic sense, the watchdog, the person in your community who's there when a mother's son gets murdered or there's a terrible tragedy, another terrible tragedy, you're there, you're often the only one there other than the police. And, and so that's where our jobs are so similar and we have so similar role because we both want the truth. And, uh, and, and so, so that was for me the first place that I really learned how important it was because if, if we weren't out there rolling on these stories, no one was going to know about them except for maybe a one paragraph press release from the police department. And instead we told the stories of these people and we, and we helped, um, we helped make sure there were, there were quality investigations into these crimes. Yeah. And that's, you know, police departments notoriously are, are very tight lipped and you know, the, the default response is not to release anything unless, you know, there's uh, you know, uh, some risk to the public or we need the public's help. And, you know, it's, um, it, it, really is very different than, you know, letting folks know what's, what's happened in, in the neighborhood or in the, in the city that night. Um, one of the common expressions you talked about when you worked at the Miami Herald, uh, one of the common expressions you hear in America is that you're never supposed to meet your heroes. And much like yourself, uh, Batman inspired one of my closest partners to become a cop. Um, Obviously, you can't meet Batman. He did get to meet uh, uh, Kevin Conroy, uh, one of the the Dark Knight's most prolific illustrators, um, and that yeah. actually, actually worked out pretty well in his favor. But one of your other heroes, uh, Edna Buchanan, also worked at the Miami Herald. What was it like working in what I presume is a pretty large shadow there? Yeah, well, well, she was gone by the time I got there, but her shadow, as you say, loomed over everything we did as crime reporters at the Herald. Um, she was so legendary. She, you know, she, she won Pulitzer Prizes for, uh, uh, for 
really for her for her wonderful coverage, but but in particular the leads, these these just beautiful first sentences that just stabs you in the heart, uh, which is really hard to do in a news story. Uh, yeah. When we think of a lot of news coverage today, it's kind of boring. And Edna flipped it so that the lead was like it just the lead of her story just grabs you by the neck and it never lets you go. And um, and she, you know, everybody in law enforcement knew her. Um, a lot of people in law enforcement respected her and gave her information because she was so good. She was just such a tenacious investigator, mm-hmm. such an incredible and dogged reporter. She dedicated her life to covering Miami in the bad days, in the cocaine cowboy days, when yeah. um, there, was bar- there was barely enough space in the newspaper to cover all the violence that was going on. So mo- a lot of times she would just have to write a story just rounding up all the homicides because there wasn't enough space in the paper to, to cover everything in depth. So, but in spite of, of that, she, yeah. summary of the murders, but, but even in spite of that, she still found a way to tell these the stories of these victims as well as the criminals and the cops and, and just beautiful, beautifully done. So at the Herald, um, you know, she inspired me to, I, I would read her, I would go into the morgue where, where they keep the clips and read her old stories. I mean, I read everything that she wrote because <laughs> Because it was just, I wanted to learn how to do it the way she did, with such skill and precision and creativity. And so, um, you know, I, I, I recommend uh, anyone who's listening who's interested in her work to read her memoir, uh, The Corpse Had a Familiar Face, which delves into the cocaine cowboy days in Miami and how she covered them in advance of winning the Pulitzer. Well, you just uh, stole my next question about how you would suggest... Uh, <laughs> aspiring journal, <laughs> investigative journalists go about uh, researching that. Um, for someone, for a, a fictional author who wanted to bring a, a journalist into their stories, what would you as a, as a professional like to see in, in that character? Uh, I think it's important that we capture the complexity of, of characters in journalism because far too often in, in portrayals of journalists on screen, both in TV and film, we see this really flat one-dimensional character, this, you know, this, um, uh, you know, either, either uh, in one way, they might be portrayed as this dogged truth seeker, um, right, who's, who's uh, and that's really all you see there, or the unethical journalist who's out for the story, um, such as in that, uh, and he'll tell a story at any cost, such as in that movie, I forget what the, the there was a movie with Jake Gyllenhaal, Mm-hmm. Um, which the, uh, where he was a uh, video journalist and he was mm, portrayed yeah. as this really unethical video journalist. And so, so you know, it, it's often one or the other. Either it's this First Amendment champion or this, this unethical scoundrel. And so I, I, the truth uh, for most journalists is that it's, most journalists are really complex, right? We have mm-hmm. really good days and really bad days and we're people. And, yeah. and we're people. And, and so... Um, so, so I would, I think the best way to, to, to write a character that's true to life as a journalist is to go out and hang out with, with a journalist on the shift for a week or two and, and see how they live and how, and what it's like to have to incorporate, um, journalism and your own code of ethics and code of, of, um, uh, coverage into your life the same way that a police investigator does. It, it's really hard to do. And it makes for really complex. It makes for really complex people, and uh, and so I think that's the best thing is just be around each other, and, and to 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 hang out with a journalist, hang out with a reporter as he goes about his often miserable but often really exciting and interesting daily life. 
So what what journalists do you listen to and who do you trust to get to get news from? That's a great question. I mean, you know, I, I was just uh, I went to a, a film the other a film the other day about uh, Jimmy Breslin and Pete Hamill, which is now on HBO. It's called Breslin and Hamill Deadline Artist. And I went because uh, Pete Hamill, my journalistic hero, was there speaking. And uh, Pete's getting up there, and but he's still he's still strong. He's still brilliant. You know, this is a guy who transcended newspaper reporting just the way Breslin did. Uh, Hamill was uh, upended the idea that that journalists were these slovenly um, characters. Uh, he dated Jackie Onassis. He wow. um, um, he, he dated Shirley MacLaine, and he dated both those women at the same time, which not a lot of people can say they did. <laughs> uh, I, 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 so Pete, Pete was sort of this glamorous figure in journalism, but he was also a street fighter, pugnacious, and, and just a wonderful reporter and human being. So he was always my hero because he was such a beautiful writer. And he was so, uh, he had such great moral clarity um, in his writing and the way he viewed the world. Um, um, and, and so so for me, um, I always just viewed him as as a model. And anybody who's interested in his books can, his best book, in my opinion, is a book called A Drinking Life, which is his memoir of drinking and then quitting drinking, which is just fascinating. It's really about journalism, even though it's called A Drinking Life. And of course, those two things are often bound up together. Yes. But as, 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 as far as, as, far as uh, uh, news coverage that I trust, um, you know, I read, I read uh, the local papers in New York. You know, I read the, and I worked for the Daily News for years, and I, they do sensationalize, and so does the Post. The Post sensationalizes, but I still read them, all right, because I read them with, it, with an eye towards uh, where, where I know what's being hyped and what's not, right? So sure. uh, I read the Daily News. I read the Post. I read the Wall Street Journal. Um, I read the LA Times. I read the Washington Post. I still stick by the traditional news outlets because in spite of the democratization and splinterization of information and news, I think they still have um, a solid foundation where they're not going to let the cr a lot of the crap get in. Now, the, you know, the, so they keep the crap out, right? So that there's information processing and they make sure what they're getting usually is quality. The problem with that is they often don't tell us a lot of what's going on because they're not getting everything that's going on. You know, they, they're so reliant. News, large news organizations are so reliant on official sources of information in the government, in the police departments, in you know wherever official agencies that um, they often miss what's going on because they don't have enough resources to be out there in the streets in the community like I am in the Bronx, finding out what's really happening on the ground. So, so um, I read what everyone else reads, but I read it with a grain of salt, and and, and I also read a lot of local community blogs and, and uh, uh, local news websites, which I think is the future um, of news because, um, you know, we don't have those, we don't have that, that all the money and all the staff of the papers like the Times and the Journal and the Post, but what we do have is knowledge, institutional knowledge, people on the ground. So I think that's the best way for people to get news in their communities is to find out what are your local news sources and see if you could trust them. Start reading them. You know, start 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 learning what their coverage is, and and get plugged in to those worlds. Because because I, I think local journalism is the future of journalism. Um, when all these massive institutions uh, that cover news are, are shrunk beyond recognition, you know, the local reporters and the local rag 
it's still going to be here. The local rag is now the local website. Is local website. Love it or hate it, these are the people out there getting bringing us news that we wouldn't otherwise have. So um, that's what I would encourage people to do is find out who the local local publications are, websites, and all in many cases, and, and, and go see what the quality go see what the quality is, and hopefully they're going to get a lot of good information about their communities that way. Well, I've saved the. The, the hardest one for last, this hypothetical that I've posed to most folks who've come on the, on the podcast, assuming as, as a crime author, I, I have to imagine you have, you know, somewhere in your mind, your favorite fictional detective, favorite fictional crime show, or, you know, uh, investigator. So hypothetically, God forbid it should come to pass, but if you were to wake up murdered tomorrow morning, who would you want working your murder investigation and why? Uh, undoubtedly, I would want uh, Philip Marlowe um, <laughs> uh, to to investigate my murder. Uh, you know, Lee was a brilliant. Such, for my money, he's he's probably the most talented crime author, detective fiction author uh, who's ever lived. And, and uh, uh, so, Philip Marlowe, his the protagonist of his books, uh, for those who don't know, is a, is a uh, is a private investigator, often at odds with the cops, but often working with them too in his own way. Um, a drinker, a guy who likes women, likes to drink once in a while, has sort of a fatalistic worldview, like many noir detectives we see in fiction, but nobody's ever done it quite like Chandler. And there's no investigator out there like Marlowe. Um, he's just such a, a wonderfully written and complex character, and the writing is, is so beautiful. And it's art, it's high art in detective fiction. So um, anybody out there who hasn't read uh, uh, Chandler, do yourself a, a favor and check it out. Cause yeah, Marlowe, hopefully he would solve my murder and hopefully he would do it and and have and make it a great story for, for uh, one of Chandler's books too. Yeah, one of, uh, one of my author friends, uh, John Patton, taught himself to write by copying uh, a Raymond Chandler book. And that was like his crash course on how to write, just word for word, type the whole thing out. And, um, you know, he writes a series, um, Miami Burn, Miami Chill. His character's name is Titus. It's, it's very Chandler-esque. Um, it's, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of his, but yeah, I, uh, I, not, not many people have pulled that one out of the hat yet. I like that. <laughs> that's, well, that, that's a great way to learn uh, is to write like Chandler because he has such great cadence. Mm -hmm. Uh, and the language, so that, that's actually brilliant on, on that author's part. I'm going to check out his work, absolutely. So I guess very, very last question then. Uh, Kevin, what do you want readers to take away from, from your writing and your work? I, I want readers to, to um, see that the stories that we uh, consume as a, as a society and as news consumers aren't always the whole picture. In fact, often they're... they're they're, they're just a sliver, a piece of the picture. Mm -hmm. I hope in my books, in my two books, I deliver to them uh, the larger truth, the larger narrative that they're not going to see often covered in the mainstream press. And, and um, I, I hope that they, um, they take a look and, and, and delve into these worlds because these worlds um, that I've written about um, um, are, are, are here. They're ever present in our cities and in our, in our larger suburbs. And, there are many trends uh, that I write about, including uh, involving gangs and drug trafficking and socioeconomics in this country, um, where the larger story of those trends is not being told uh, in the mainstream press. And so I tried to do that 
uh, in my books. And so I, I hope people will delve into them and through my books, um, learn and explore more about how uh, poverty, drugs, and socioeconomic issues are impacting this country every day in ways both seen and unseen. Well, I appreciate you being here. Thanks again to investigative journalist and true crime author, podcast host, Kevin Deutsch, for making time to join me today. You've been listening to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there.